0: chapter 4. And if you need a Bible to follow along with us, just lift up your hand and the ushers will discreetly drop one off to you. And if you don't own a Bible, then you can make that your own. Just keep it and bring it back with you next time. Mark it up. Write your name in it. Draw a little picture. Ephesians chapter 4. We will be picking up in verse 21. I remember growing up in the farm country of Monroe County, New York. And every Sunday night, my parents would pack up the station wagon and we would go to my grandmother's house, who lived in an old traditional Italian neighborhood on the south side of the city of Rochester. And uh, when I say old, traditional Italian neighborhood, that means something. That has a whole bunch of pictures and stereotypes that are all true, that are related to it. And and I remember a few doors down from my grandmother's house, there was a woman whose name was Beatrice Wolfe. She was a woman that was of little more than a peasant's, you know, spot, if you would, you know, she wore old tattered clothes, uh, she never did anything to her house, she lived alone, she was a widow, and my brother and I would go over there, and sometimes she would, she would let us help her roll her cigarettes, you know, she, she was very pauperish, she didn't buy anything, my father told us that she, lived on $20 a week, you know, and she was one of those people that her, her whole basement was filled with non-perishables and the whole rest, and, and we were always fascinated by her, you know, we would go there, and, and, and it just looked like she, really, like she should have died like 20 years ago, but she kept on kicking, you know, and she was spunky and all the rest, you know. Well, when she died, um, we were a little bit older, and my father was named executor of the will, And it turned out that Beatrice Wolfe was worth tens of millions of dollars. They went through her house and they found loads of cash sewn into the inseam of You know, pants that hadn't been worn for years since her husband passed away. It was wrapped into the curtain clips of the, you know, the drapes throughout the house. It was underneath the soles of the sneakers. They literally had to take the entire house apart piece by piece just to find all of what was hidden in it. I remember after one night of them doing this, my father came home with a metal box. He opened it up and he said, he took out a stack of money, put it in our He said, have you ever held $30,000 in cash before? And, you know, we were just kids. We were like, whoa, you know. And, you know, the, the woman was just loaded. But looking back on my memories of Beatrice Wolfe and now what I know of her, my assessment of her life is that she did not possess a lifestyle that was worthy of her wealth. Perhaps you've known someone or or you know someone now that is living in a way that they're living below what they're worth. And in our minds, that doesn't compute. When someone has the means to live comfortably or to live a certain lifestyle, and yet they don't for whatever reason they might have, it doesn't compute with us. We say, why would they choose to live like this when they could just as comfortably, just as easily uncompromisingly live like this. And typically, a person's lifestyle is determined by their wealth. What they have will translate into how they live. It's just the way it kind of works. There's many Christian people whose spiritual lives reflect that of Beatrice Wolfe. The quality of their Christian lifestyle is way below the wealth that they possess as those that are positioned in Jesus Christ. And essentially, the message that the Apostle Paul is giving to us in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians is to let our lifestyle as Christians be a reflection of the wealth that we have in Christ. The first three chapters, that's all he did, was lay out for us all that belongs to us in Christ all that is laid to our account, the incredible wealth that we possess as those that are in Him, been chosen by Him. Our names are written in heaven. We belong to the Lord. We're in Him. When we pray, the Father has to see Christ to hear us because that's where we abide. That's where we live. And the vastness of that treasure and what it is, Paul lays it out for us in those first three chapters. And now in chapters 4 and 5, He's talking about the lifestyle that we should now carry as those that possess that great wealth, that great treasure. It's not an accident that Paul started by laying out our wealth in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now he's talking about our lifestyle or our walk. It isn't just that he thought of that first. Well, he could have talked about our walk in chapters 1 and 2 and then our wealth in 3, 4 and 5. No, 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 no. He had to tell us about the wealth that we possess in Christ first before he talks to us about our lifestyle. Because it's the wealth that we possess that enables us to live the life that he's calling us to live. Just like a person that possesses riches or wealth in the physical realm, they need to spend it in order to dress themselves or ornament themselves or put a roof over their heads. They have to use what they have in order to accomplish what they do or what they wear or, you know, what they are. And the same thing is true in Christ. It isn't our effort that allows us to live the Christian lifestyle. But rather, it's everything that he's accomplished on our behalf and all that he has graced and ornamented with, that's what allows us to live this Christian life. And so Paul began, and he says, these are the riches that you possess, and therefore, this is the kind of lifestyle that you should live in light of that. So in the remainder of chapter 4, where we pick it up right around verse 21, the Apostle Paul is going to give to us four characteristics or four examples that demonstrate the lifestyle of the spiritually rich. Remember that show, Robin Leach, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? You know, it used to be on Saturday mornings growing up. I'd be waiting for WWF wrestling to come on. And I would have to suffer through Robin Leach talking about, you know, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. And going through the, you know... Neverland, you know, Michael Jackson's thing, and, and, and the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is essentially giving to us here. He's saying that this is the lifestyle of someone who is graced, ornamented with the wealth, the treasures of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is the lavish lifestyle of the Lamb or of those that belong to Him? He begins by telling us that you cannot live lavishly Until you have first put off poverty. That makes sense, doesn't it? Look with me at verse 21. He says, If so be that you have heard Him, speaking of Christ, and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. If so be that you have heard Him. If you've been taught by Him as the truth is in Him. That is, if you truly possess this great wealth that I have shown to you, demonstrated, and laid out for you, if it truly is yours, and you're truly alive in Him, and you belong to Him, then what you're to do in verse 22, he says, then put off concerning the former conversation. That word means lifestyle. You might have lifestyle in your Bible if you have a New King James. But he says that you put off concerning the former lifestyle, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. He says, put off the old lifestyle. If you possess the riches of Christ, then stop living like a spiritual peasant. Stop obeying the dictates of the old life. Stop living according to the rules and standards of the world and of the flesh. Stop living in a way where you solely exist to satisfy the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's living like a peasant, and we're being called out of that life. And he tells us why. He says, because that lifestyle is growing corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Again, if you have a New King James that actually uses that word there, it says that it grows corrupt. That the old nature grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The word corrupt means a downward trend. We understand that. You buy a new car and what happens to it over not a very long period of time? It grows corrupt. It starts with a little ding in one of the doors and then a little bit of a dent on one of the bumpers and then, you know, a tiny bit of rust underneath the wheel well. And little by little, this thing that was once this treasure, this shiny, you know, spectacular thing is now becoming corrupted. And Paul is saying that basically the old nature, this thing that we're born with, the old man, the self, it grows increasingly corrupt the longer that we live according to it. It's like spoiled milk, right? It, It goes bad and then it just keeps going bad. It never gets to a point where you can bring it back or revive it or use it again or somehow pasteurize it and bring out the good and kind of spit out. No, no, it is bad. You want the whole thing gone. And that's what happens to this nature, this old man that we have. It's corrupt and it grows corrupt. The older we get, the worse it is. I mean, we can feel that, right? The pull of sin and the strength of temptation, the older we get, it just keeps getting worse. And to live according to the dictates of the flesh and and, and the desires of it and of the mind is to live in a state of continual decline. The quality of your life is going to continue to degress. More and more and more. And he says instead, in verse 23, he says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's written in the aorist tense, which means that it's more accurately translated, Be being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That it isn't something that just happens once, that you just hit the reset button and it's all complete. But it's this lifestyle that we're living, it it is something where we're going in the opposite direction. Rather than growing more corrupt with each passing day, we're being continually renewed and brought into newness of life day by day. Renewed in the spirit of our mind. And to live according to what we have in Christ is to be continually ascending. Moving closer to Him the quality of life is increasing. The capacity that we have for joy and to perceive spiritual truth and to experience hope, it's something that grows. It's not something that's digressing and getting further from us or becoming more alienated as we become more corrupt, but we're being renewed, we're being brought close. But notice with me also in that verse, verse 24 or verse 23, it says that we're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And notice that word, mind, because it's very important. Paul didn't say that by accident or, you know, in a poetic type of way. The mind is the key thing that we're dealing with here. Why? Because the fact that this is taking place within our mind, this renewal, this change, means that we have a part to play within it. See, we can't produce the wealth that must be spent in order to live this way, but what we must do is we must make the choice The active, conscious decision that we're going to live this way. It's something that happens in our mind. It doesn't happen by itself. We have to choose. So what is the choice? Verse 24. He says, and that you put on. So we have put off the old man. And now we're to put on the new man. Which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's our choice, and it's a choice we must make daily. In fact, it, it, it's a choice we make more than daily. It's moment by moment, in each passing moment, in every conversation, in every thing that happens, every encounter, everything that, that, that happens to us in the course of a day, there's a choice for us to make. And that is that it's the choice to employ the wealth that's available to us and to live out the Christian life, not by our own strength, And and it's amazing because look at what he says there in that verse. He says that it's after God it's created, and it says in righteousness and true holiness. And that's how we know that the power doesn't come from us. Because there is no man, woman, or child anywhere on the planet that can produce true holiness within themselves. We can produce false holiness. We can produce false humility. We can put on an air of spirituality, but we cannot produce true holiness within us because the Bible says, Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. We are completely spiritually bankrupt within our own ability. We cannot produce anything that is good. God said to Isaiah the prophet, he said that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before him. It's an abomination. There's nothing good that comes from us. And so if righteousness and true holiness is going to be assimilated into who I am, then that means that it has to come from someplace else. And so the wealth that must be employed cannot come from me, but there's an active choice that has to happen within my mind that I'm going to obey and take what's being supplied, what's being given, and then live this life in truth. Not in false humility or false holiness, but that I'm going to allow him to work it out or work it into me in real truth. And true holiness can only come from the power of God's Holy Spirit enabling us, living within us. So we're to make a decision. We're to put off the old, and we're to put on the new man. We're to stop living like peasants, and we're to live... Like those that are spiritually rich. Paul gives us four examples of what that looks like. Four characteristics of the spiritually wealthy. The first one he gives to us in verse 25. He tells us that the spiritually wealthy speak truth. He says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He says, Put away lying. It's interesting, there was a poll that was put out, and according to its results, over 90% of American citizens openly admit to lying on a regular basis. They say, well, it's just a part of life, it's just something that you have to do. If you want to get things done, and if you want to accomplish, or if you want to possess, then it's just a part of what we have to do, it's just become a part of modern society that we have to lie. And we're so used to it that we we hear it all the time and it doesn't even phase us. I mean, it's campaign season right now. And you turn on the TV and you see these people talking. You watch the State of the Union address and you just know you're being lied to. That every single word is a pure lie. You know, whether it's direct, directly being lied, like like it's not going to happen this way and I'm saying it. Or I'm saying something that sounds good so that I can come around over here and steal your money, you know, and 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 every single thing that comes out of the mouth and and I'm on both sides of the aisle. It's lies. All of it. You watch TV commercials and things that they're trying to sell you. They're lying to us constantly. We have conversations with people that we work with, people that we commerce with, people that we interact with, and they lie to us. And we know they're lying, and they know we know they're lying, but we just smile because we're so used to it, it doesn't even move us anymore because it's such a common thing. It's so common that we even ourselves do it sometimes, and, and it doesn't phase us. We just think, well, these are white lies, you know, they don't really count, or they know I'm lying, you know, so, you know, we go, we buy a car, and we just say, no, 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 I cannot afford to give you one dime more than this. Well, that's just how we do things, that's just what it is. Of course, I'm not going to tell him what I can really afford, he'd take me for everything I've got, but but we, we, it's just a part of what we do, it doesn't bother us, you know. It's interesting, though, that we look at Jesus, and he employed none of these things. He never spoke in half-truths. He never used double entendres, you know, or political speech in order to work an audience and and win them to his side, even though what he was saying was just kind of true, or maybe there was a shred of truth. But even to the point where he said to the people, he said, My flesh is food indeed. And my blood is drink. And unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And many of the people, it says, they turned around and they followed him no more. And the the, twelve, the apostles, they came and they said, Lord, you can't say things like that. We're losing the crowd. You can't do that. But Jesus didn't care about that. Because he spoke the truth. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. They would call him a lunatic. But it wouldn't change the things that he said because I only speak those things which please the Father and do his will. That's my purpose. That's my drive in my life. Even as he stood before Pilate, and Pilate said, don't you know that I have power to save your life and power to take it from you? Jesus would say, you would have no power at all except it were given to you from God. And all he had to do was clarify and give meaning to the things that he said. But he would not dare if it would in any way cast a shadow upon the full weight of the truth of who he was and what it was that he came to do. My wife um, went to college with a young woman named Becca Smith. She led my wife to the Lord. And she was brought up in a Christian home and she walked the walk. She's still walking the walk even to this day. And as a young girl, she made a decision within herself that she was never going to tell a lie, at least consciously. You know uh, That that was just a decision that she made that no matter what it would cost her, the shame, the embarrassment, or you know that she would have to backtrack or go back and, and, and apologize or whatever, that she would never tell a lie at any point in her life. And her testimony was that, that that brought trouble sometimes. It meant that she would get in trouble because she would have to tell the truth when it was incriminating. Sometimes it brought embarrassment and shame as she had to say things that made her look bad. But the one thing that it did afford her that she carried with her her whole life was that it gave her great peace. She slept real good at night. Because she never had to think, well, okay, what did I say to this person? And what did I say to that person? And how am I going to say to this person what I need to say so that when that person says what they say to them, it doesn't come out that I said this to them and this to them. And see, what happens is we can get ourselves into a big problem, you know. I'll never forget that testimony, because, you know, it really works. I worked for a company called Superior Interior Systems, and I was a first-year apprentice, and that was not a very glamorous position. You'd sweep the floor, you'd kick some rocks, you'd have to hide for a while. You know, it just was not very fun. And there was one day when it just got so incredibly unbearable that I just, I did not want to go into work. And so I picked up the phone, and I called up, and I said, yeah, I can't make it today. I'm not feeling well. And the Holy Spirit, as I hung up the phone, said to my heart, oh, really? And I said, oh, you know, I'm tired, you know, whatever. He said, you look fine. What are you going to do today? Oh, I don't know. Probably go to the gym or something. Oh, really? <laughs> you know? And all day long, the Spirit was there saying, You lied. 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 You lied, and I put earplugs in, spiritual earplugs, and the Spirit went, You lied, you lied, you lied, you lied. And then I said, Stop talking, the Spirit just looked at me. And I knew what he was thinking. You lied, you lied, you lied. About 7 o'clock that night, and it just happened to be on a Thursday night, which was midweek service, you know, I'm sitting there in the church, and I'm listening to the Bible being taught, and I'm getting blessed. But all I'm hearing is the Holy Spirit saying, you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied, you know. So I went into the church office in the middle of the service and I called Steve McGuckin, who is the superintendent for the company, at his house. I looked it up in the phone book and I said, Steve, I cannot live this way. I lied to you. I was not sick today. I said, I just didn't want to come to work. And I lied. I'm sorry. I said, do I still have a job? He said, call me in the morning. And he hung up the phone. (laughs) And I said, all right, it's okay. But you know, there was such peace. I was released. It was incredible. I was able to enjoy the evening not even knowing. And do you know what? Not only did I not lose my job, but I had for some reason this incredible favor with Steve McGuckin for the rest of the time I worked with that company. Because honesty brings honor. The word honor is in there. See, and when we live this way as Christians, not only will God honor us, but it brings us honor amongst each other. That's what Paul says. Look at how he finishes the verse. He says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We belong to each other, and we're dependent upon each other, and therefore we must be honest people. We've got to be able to rely upon each other, especially within the body of Christ. The spiritually wealthy are not people that lie or make it their practice to lie or to speak glibly or fast in a way that it paints the wrong picture. We're to speak truth with our neighbor. Now, listen, men. Your wife looks good in that dress. Okay? That is not a lie. She does look good in the dress. You have an eye problem. Okay? And women... Your husbands are majestic creatures. They look good. They smell good. Okay? It's your problem, not their problem. Listen, you do you understand? Don't get yourself into trouble. Let's move on. Number two. <laughs> Verse 26, he tells us how the spiritually wealthy handle anger. He says, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. He tells us two things here in this verse. He tells us, first of all, be angry and sin not. And then he tells us, let not the sun go down on your wrath. And what we learn here is that there are two types of anger. Anger is like cholesterol. There is good anger, the HDL anger, you know, which is the, you know, the holy devoted lividness. And then you have the LDL anger, which is the bad anger, and that's the low-life devilish lividness. There's two types of, of, of cholesterol, two types of anger. There's good anger and there's bad anger. Well, what's good anger? We see Jesus and we see Him in the temple and He's overturning tables with eyes of fire and biceps bulging as He goes through and He says, This is my Father's house and it's to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. Tearing through, we hear Jesus saying to the scribes and the Pharisees that they're hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. They travel land and sea to make one proselyte, but inside themselves they were full of covetousness and dead men's bones. They, you make white the outside of the house, but the inside is filled with vileness. And he possessed this rage, and his disciples were even taken back. They said in Matthew 24, 1 and 2, uh, almost, Lord, calm down, you know. But yet, are we going to begin to think for one moment that Jesus sinned? He was angry, but he didn't sin. See, it wasn't a self-motivated anger. It wasn't because of something that was done in offense to him. It was a righteous zeal that was stemmed from the offense that they had brought to his father. And it stirred up in him a wrath. It wasn't sin. He was jealous for the father's glory. And listen, there are things, saints, that we should be angry about. When we hear about an adult that abuses a child, it should make us angry. There should be anger within us for that. There's no limit on the amount of anger that you can have when it comes to something like that. When a government oppresses its people and murders them and violates their rights, we should be angry about that. There should be anger there. When a leader is deceiving and lording, There should be anger that rises up within us. There's nothing wrong with that. There's anger that is not sinful. It's good anger. But good anger will always drive us to prayer and to spirit-directed action. Jesus' anger didn't lead him to sin. What he did was not sin. It led him to do something wherein if the people he was doing it to wanted to somehow bring charges upon him, it would expose their iniquity. It was wise. See, they couldn't say anything. What would happen if someone came in here and started overturning chairs and everything? You know, we'd have them hauled out of here. They're disturbing the peace. But see, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, the hypocrites that were using the temple as a marketplace were driving people away from God by making the temple what it was never intended to be. And should they have thought in any way to bring charges against Jesus for what he was doing, it would have only exposed that they were doing something that they were not supposed to be doing. He didn't sin in his anger, but he exposed their sin. And it wasn't selfish anger. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And there is an anger that is righteous, that is not sinful. There's, an, there's, a, there's a good hatred Psalm chapter 139, verses 21 and 22, David said, I hate those that hate your ways. I hate them with a perfect hatred. Now, I would have got my mouth washed out with soap when I was a kid for saying that, because I wasn't allowed to say I hated anything, you know. But yet, David before the Lord says, I hate with perfect hatred those that hate your ways. There's a righteous hatred, and there's a righteous anger, that which keeps people back from God and deceives people concerning God. And he says, concerning this good anger, he says, be angry and sin not. But on the other side of the coin, there's an anger that isn't good. There's bad anger. When we get angry because someone has offended or slighted or wounded us in some way and it brings wrath and rage within us and it causes us to emotionally want to lash back at someone for what they've done, that is an anger that must be dealt with in a much different way. That anger cannot continue within us. It has damaging effects. To those, Jesus said, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Now, it isn't sin to be angry. Anger is a part of our makeup. It's part of what we are. And to be angry isn't sin. But we must, as Christians, be very careful how we deal with the anger. That's important. Because if we don't deal with it right, it has the potential to do a lot of damage both to us and those that are around us. And he tells us that the proper way for the Christian to handle anger is to not let the sun go down on your wrath. In other words, deal with it right away. Deal with the wound. Deal with the effect. Deal with the thing that's bothering you. And don't let it sit within you and fester and become infected. There's been a lot of talk in this church for the past week and a half about the topic of forgiveness since bobby's message not this past sunday but the one before where he talked about you know his father his parents and how he forgave and the whole message on forgiveness and the response to that message has been incredible the dialogue hasn't stopped since then of people talking about the issues the forgiveness issues that they have why is forgiveness such a huge issue why is it so important that we forgive imagine with me for 1 minute that you somehow got lacerated There was a wound, a cut inflicted upon your arm, whether it was with a knife or maybe a piece of glass, whether it was from someone else or an accident, you did it yourself. There's a wound, there's a laceration. The most important thing for you at that moment that you are cut, that you are wounded, is to clean that wound. Because if you don't clean the wound, then you risk infection, and if the wound that's been inflicted becomes infected, you have a much worse problem in the end than you started with at the beginning. And so the first thing you do when you feel that wound is that you clean the wound. Now imagine with me that somebody wounds you internally. It's not the cut of a knife or of a piece of glass, but rather it's a dig or a punch or a shot from someone that you love or trust or work alongside and they they get you, man. They get you good. There's a wound. There's something that's happened inside of you. And it provokes an emotional response within you. You feel that rising up, you know, that you just want to lash back. There's something there. The anger, the wrath of what just happened to you. You feel it coming. Listen, the most important thing when that wound is inflicted upon your soul is to clean it. And God's prescribed antibody for accomplishing that is forgiveness. To release the debt of what was taken or pressed upon you in that way. Even if it's serious. Even if it's something that goes back or that it's continual. The most important thing is to take care of the infection. Get the infection out. Because if you don't get the infection out, then it will spread and it will do more damage. It will move into other areas and it will ultimately affect your whole life and ultimately, it could kill you. Now, people get confused with this whole concept of forgiveness. Because you say, okay, well, th- what they did to me is serious and real. Or it's continual. It's still happening. And, and, and how do we deal with this? A- am I just supposed to forgive them and, and pretend that it never happened and just kind of go along? And, and, and No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. See, forgiveness is an act of your will. It's when you release the debt. You're saying, no, I'm forgiving you. I'm choosing not to hold a grudge. And just like that wound on your arm, you clean it, but that doesn't mean that the wound isn't there anymore, or that it doesn't hurt, or that it doesn't need to heal. It just means that you've cleansed it. And that's what forgiveness does. It doesn't take away the pain, and it doesn't mean that there won't be a scar. Something that lasts. But you've cleansed it, and you've enabled the healing process to begin. And it's so important that we forgive. Be angry and sin not. But if you don't forgive, then here's what happens. The seed of unforgiveness will always bring forth the root of bitterness. The seed of unforgiveness will always bring forth the root of bitterness. And if you don't forgive, look look what happens. He tells us in verse 27. He says, neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. Imagine with me for a minute that your heart is a garden. It's a fitting illustration. Jesus used it. In Matthew chapter 13, he talked about the four types of soil and how seed is sown in it. And it's, and it's equated to the human heart. See your heart for a moment as a garden. 20 by 20, a fence that goes all the way around it, carefully cultivated, nicely tilled, The rocks have been removed, the soil is loose and moist and ready to receive, and there's a garden, it's God's garden, and He wants to bring forth and cause it to become fruitful. And you decide, and you say, well, you know what, this is a beautiful garden, but I've got a really good offer, I'm just going to rent out a small corner of it, just maybe like one by one, it's nothing really. I mean, we're talking about 400 square feet, and I'm just going to rent out one square foot. It's really one 400, and I'm going to give it to Satan. So, Jesus, this is yours. 399 square feet. You can plant, and man, there's going to be fruit. It's going to be great. But one square foot, because I can't let go. There's just an issue. There's something there. And so, Satan, you can have this one. And he says, I know exactly what I'm going to plant. And there it is, the seed of unforgiveness and it germinates and it brings forth the root of bitterness and it sinks down and it grabs the soil and it begins to grow. I can't believe what they did to me. I can't believe they said it. They call themselves a Christian and they act that way, embarrassing me in front of those people? Or they're supposed to be my parent or my spouse, my loved one. And I'm not letting go of this. They're going to have their time. They're going to get their day. But see, the problem with the root of bitterness, because Satan has gotten place, he's had a hold in your heart, is that it always spreads. It never remains in that one-by-one section, but it spreads and it begins to pollute and contaminate the rest of what's been sown within that garden. And ultimately, it will choke out every good and fruitful thing that will ever be planted in it. And so Paul says it is not of the wealthy to give place to the devil. Deal with anger the right way. The spiritually wealthy deal with anger swiftly and seriously and graciously. He's going to get to that at the end of the chapter. The third thing he tells us is how the spiritually wealthy handle personal property. Look with me at verse 28. He says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. And we understand stealing. Stealing is taking what doesn't belong to you. And the point, and I believe Paul's point here, is not so that we would define what is stealing. Well, is taking a pen from work stealing? Are you stealing time by taking a longer break than you should? That's not the point. The point that Paul is making is that the spiritually wealthy don't need to take what isn't theirs. If you're in Christ and you possess all things as a person of Christ, then why would you need to take anything from anybody? Whether it's time or something trivial or whether it's something serious. What need do we have of that when he says, He that spared not his only son, how much more will he not now freely give us all things? It doesn't have place. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute within the life of a Christian that we should live this way. He says, let him that stole steal no longer, but rather, he says, let him work, or labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, so that, and here's the converse, he might have something to give to him that has needs. See, the peasant, or the Gentile, the person that doesn't know Christ, they live to accumulate and amass possessions and things materially for themselves. That's their drive, their goal, their ambition. How can they prepare and enhance their own estate. But someone who knows Christ and and, and is fulfilled in Him and understands the world for what it is, that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away with the affections and the lust thereof. And the child of God that understands that has the ability to employ what he's been given in order that he might apply his energy to exalting and blessing others. And that's the gift that we've been given. That we can have a completely different perspective, a completely contrasting view from the world at how we look at stuff, how we look at things. And the spiritually wealthy live to help others, not to just magnify themselves. He goes on to talk about how the spiritually wealthy communicate in verse 29. He says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. I remember I took a class in college. It was anthropology, and I only took it because I had to. And I don't remember anything about it except for one thing. The professor spent a day talking about curse words, and that was up my alley. So I paid attention and he talked to us about the origin of curse words. And I don't know if what he said is true, but what he told us is that back when feudalism ruled Europe and there was classes of people and everything worked in the class system, there was a huge distinction between the peasants and the nobles. And so determined were they to draw separation between the two classes that they would actually have different words to say the same thing, but they didn't want to associate with each other. So a noble would say, I have to urinate, wherein a peasant would say, I have to, and they would use a different word that starts with a P, you know. And, and and that was the origin of where curse words came from, is that a peasant would use the curse words, the dirty words they were known as, and the nobles would use, you know, noble language, more, you know, good stuff, you know. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, it sounds good. It makes sense. But what I do know is this, is that there's a huge difference between the language of a Christian and the language of someone who is not a Christian. And I'm not just talking about curse words, and neither is Paul. He's not just simply saying to us here that we're not to swear or curse or use that kind of language, you know, that would cause us to get a rap in the beak from our parents when we were kids, you know. It's more than that. He talks about corrupt communication. I want to really quickly give you the five C's of corrupt communication. and You can write these things down and you can ask God like David did. David said, Lord, set a watch in front of my mouth so that I don't say anything stupid. You know, The five C's of corrupt communication, first of all, curse words, very obviously. You know, it makes a big difference in today's world when there's a person who doesn't use curse words. I never realized, you know, it was one of those things that God just took away from me. You know, I remember growing up, uh, I'd I ride on the bus and I'd sit in a seat and I remember a girl looked over at me and my mom, uh, she said, I'm not allowed to sit next to you. My mom says, Nick Santos is a swear mouth, you know, <laughs> and, and that was me growing up. Why not? You know, but, but when I got saved, God just took that. It wasn't, I didn't struggle. I didn't have to try. It was just like, it was foreign to me to use those words once I got saved and i didn 't have to try, but and I never realized what a difference it made, but people notice i 'd be on the job, and the foreman would look at me after two days and say you don 't swear much, do you and then he you know he 'd be impressed by that, so he made it a thing he put a big sign on the gang box, no swearing, and I was like well i didn 't say it it didn 't come from me, you know but whatever you know and it 's amazing the difference that it makes when we just clean up our mouth you know when we 're around unbelievers, people notice. The second C word is cutting words. Some people feel like it's always necessary to put others down. To just say something to make them feel a little bit smaller and to make themselves look a little bit bigger. It's not necessary that we live that way. The third is criticism. Now, I know someone's going to say, well, what about constructive criticism? You know, there's criticism, but then there's constructive criticism. Listen, 98% of all criticism is deconstructive. It tears down. Most people, when they say, give me some constructive criticism, what they're looking for is affirmation. And when they hear you say, you know, I'm really glad you asked that, immediately what happens? They're not built up. They're not edified. They're not encouraged. They're brought low. We need the power and the wisdom of God in this area to help us. Because there is a way to criticize someone without cutting them down, without tearing them down. There's a way to give instruction to someone, but we need the wisdom, the wealth of God's wisdom by the power of His Spirit to just know how to love people. To speak the truth in love in a way that they can receive it and grow, but yet not feel like they're being put down or squashed or critiqued. The fourth C is clamor. It's a King James word, it means gossip, or a.k.a. character assassination. It's when you speak a word about someone else when they're not around that paints them with dark colors. The problem with it is that it's impossible for the person that hears it to separate those colors from the person when they see them. And so if I come to you and I say, hey, did you hear about Bobby? I wouldn't do that, you know. And then I tell you something. It's impossible for you the next time you see Bobby to not think about what you just heard. It's character assassination. And it's destructive. It can ruin people. In the Proverbs, God talks about seven things that he hates. And one of them is, he says, those that sow discord among brethren. He hates it. He hates gossip. It's poison, and especially in the body of Christ, it has no place. It's corrupt communication. He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And number five, and this is the biggest one, sit on the edge of your seat and get your pencil or pen ready with your paper and write it down in big, bold capital letters. The fifth C word is complaining. Complaining. There's nothing more peasant-like in all of God's kingdom than someone who complains. I wish I had more time to talk about this. But because I'm so guilty of it, I'm kind of glad I don't, I guess, you know. But I will say this. I will say that there will come a point in your Christian life, if it hasn't yet, that the Spirit of God will address that in you if it's an issue. And it will become that beacon of Sound that you hear in your ear, you're complaining, you're complaining, you're complaining, you're complaining, you're complaining. On the contrast of that, there's nothing more noble in all of God's kingdom than someone who doesn't complain. Have you ever been around someone that just doesn't complain? It is so refreshing. It's awesome. It's uplifting. It's like fresh water. You know how sometimes you drink water, but it's been through a water softener and you could tell? You know, it's, it's all right. It's clean. You know, it's not going to kill you, but you could taste it. And then you have like fresh, real spring water. You know, the purest kind. It's the difference between someone being around someone who complains and someone who doesn't. It's just so refreshing, so nice to be around someone who doesn't complain. It's corrupt communication. But he says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but rather that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now, he uses two words to describe the communication. The first, the corrupt communication. Now, we already talked about the word corrupt, right? It means to corrode. It means to degrade. It means to bring down. It means to compromise the quality or the value of something. It's a down word. And all of the corrupt communication always tears down. It always tends down. It always talks down. That's corrupt communication. But Paul says, instead of that, that which is good, unto the use of edifying. That's the second word, edifying. And to edify always means to build up, to advance, to bring forth, to affirm. That's what it means to edify. And he says that as wealthy Christians, not materially, but spiritually, our speech is not to be corrupt like the world, but rather we're to speak edifyingly. Whether it be what we're saying to someone else or how we're communicating with others or how we just conduct ourselves in general conversation, it's to be edifying and uplifting. That's the way we're to be. And this is how the wealthy communicate. You know, don't you feel like Paul is like our schoolmaster right now? You get the picture of like little orphan Annie or, you know, Von Trapp, you know, the sound of music, and he's trying to teach the kids how to behave, you know? And and it's kind of like that. Paul's saying, listen, This is what we are in Christ. We have this incredible treasure, and it ought to be reflected in our lives. And so he tells us the four characteristics of the spiritually wealthy, and he finishes in verse 30. Listen to what he says. He says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. What does he mean by this? What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit of God? How does a Christian grieve the Holy Spirit? Imagine with me for one minute that you had a very wealthy uncle, and he came to you one day and he said, you know what, I I am going to, I am so rich, I am so wealthy, I can't possibly ever use it all, and so here's what I'm going to do for you. I am going to supply you with a continual supply of money. Every single day, I will replenish your bank account to the fullest amount that the bank will allow. And no matter how much you spend, no matter what you do with it, every day, I'm going to replenish it back to where it was the day before. Every day for the rest of your life, you have no further worries about money. Now, what if that uncle, a year later, came to visit you, and he came and he saw you wearing tattered, torn clothes... He saw you living in a house where the roof was leaky and moldy, you know and, and you stank, you smelled bad, and you weren 't taking care of yourself and and, 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 and and you were your refrigerator was empty, and you weren 't eating and everything everything about you was just decrepit and, and messed up and Then he walks into your house and he sees that right there next to the wood stove there 's stacks of money. But they're not being stored there. They're being used as fuel for the wood stove. You're just like, well, I could just use the stuff. And so you throw it in the wood stove and you burn. Hey, there's, there's an unlimited supply. Where are you going to get an unlimited supply of firewood, you know? Now, your uncle would be grieved, wouldn't he? To say that might be the kind of thing like be angry and sin not. I'm not sure, you know, but he would be grieved with that. And see, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God when we, as Christians, possess the wealth of what's been given to us and afforded by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our position in Christ, our place in Christ, our hope in Christ, our future in Christ. But yet we live in a way that doesn't reflect what we are and what we've been given. That grieves the Holy Spirit of God or when we misappropriate what He's given to us, the wealth that He's given to us, in a way where we use it to exalt and magnify and use it to to bless ourselves, rather than to bring pleasure and glory to the Lord. Notice in verse 31, He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Malice is ill will. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for christ's sake, has forgiven you. Put away those things, and instead be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, even as Christ God in Christ has forgiven. How did God forgive us in Christ when we least deserved it? The Bible says that when we were yet His enemies, it was then that Christ died for us. That He was the initiator, that He extended grace towards us when we were in the place where we didn't deserve it. And He says that that's how we're to be. And He ties on to that there in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Followers of God as dear children. The word follow there is the word imitate. And you might have that. If you have a New King James, again, it uses the word imitators. Be therefore imitators of God as dear children. Now, in context, in the context of the Bible, the word imitator never means to put on an act. You know, like like if, if I was going to imitate someone you know, from the pulpit, if I was going to try to imitate Billy Graham or something, I would be putting on an act. It wouldn't be real of what's inside of me, but I would be simply just doing something that I saw somewhere else. That's not what he means when he tells us to be an imitator. Because the Bible talks about how we're to be sincere. We're not to put on an act. So, what does this mean? What does it mean that we're to be an imitator? It means that we're to use the wealth that we've been given by the power of the Holy Spirit to employ the lifestyle of godliness. It means employing what's been given to you so that you can reflect the same image of the one who gave it to you. Using what he gave to be a reflection of who he is. And here's how you know if you're doing it as we close. When a person, when a man or a woman, is a child of God, And they've been graced by the wealth of the Spirit of God. And they use it, their life will begin to look like the Son of God, Jesus. See, Jesus, the Bible tells us that he possessed nothing. And yet he was sought by kings and nobles as they said, Who is this man that we're hearing so much about? He had no place to lay his head, and yet it tells us that the rich and the powerful came to see this man who seemed to have it all, though he possessed nothing. He spoke of a peace that passed imagination. He possessed a joy that the Bible says was unspeakable and full of glory. That he himself was the very essence of light and life, and that that light was the light of men. And it was unapproachable, but yet it was so approachable And it so resonated with people that they wanted to know him. They wanted to be like him. They wanted what he had. And see, here's the thing, and this is the glory of what Paul is trying to communicate to us, is that the same wealth that made him possess the quality of life that he did and to be who he was is what's been given to us because we're in him. And so, therefore, we have the privilege and the call... To not just stand there and have it, but we're to employ it and use it so that we can be a reflection of who He is. But in the process, we get to enjoy what He gives. And I'm not talking about the material wealth. I'm not talking about prosperity in the here and now. I'm talking about what He graces us with by the power of His Spirit. The reality of His life. The musicians can come. As I close, I'll say this. Don't be like Beatrice Wolfe. having the Holy Spirit at your disposal, but yet living spiritually as a peasant. Don't spend your whole Christian existence thinking that the wealth that we've been given is only useful in the world to come. But rather, we have the resources to live such an exceedingly higher life. And I hope that we have the wisdom to take and to employ it. And when we, live, when we make the choice to live royally, God gives us the power and the supply to do it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this teaching, Lord. I pray that you would take the things that we've heard tonight and that you would sear them into our mind and that you would forever give us this picture of who we are as your sons and daughters. And that by the power of Christ in us, you would give us the ability to live according to what we are We pray that you would help us, Lord. We thank you for these examples, these pictures. And I pray that they would forever be ours, Lord. Give us the ability to be that salt and light to a lost and dying world. We give you thanks, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And may our lives reflect all that you've done. We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.